Hello, everybody. It is Wednesday in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. My name is Adam Bittner, Assistant Sports Editor for Multimedia at the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, back for our weekly Penn State podcast with our Steelers, or excuse me, not our Steelers, our Post-Gazette and Penn State insider, uh, Daily Collegiate insider, Seth Angle. Seth, how are you? Lots to talk about this week. Doing well, yeah. We're uh, So I'm actually going down to, going over to Vegas today for, for the Super Bowl, going with Penn State and, um, you know, not as prepared as you can be, you know, to, to do something like that. But uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. So heading over to the airport in a couple hours and, you know, no place I'd rather be before then talking to Penn State football with you, Adam. So happy to be here. Yeah. Watch Seth's dispatches. You can find him on Twitter. Um, Seth, you can drop your, your Twitter here in a second. I just want to tease our, our topic for today. Uh, we're talking a little pit Penn State recruiting because Penn State picks up another big recruit out of the whip wheel on, I believe, Monday. Alex Tash from Latrobe. He's, a, I believe, four-star linebacker. He's the second uh, big name of this cycle, I believe. Um, Tiqui Hayes, or how do you say his name? Do you know how to say his name out of Aliquippa? Yeah, I think he's just going by Tyke Hayes is, is kind of his nickname that he's been going by. Yeah, but there have been a number of these kind of Pittsburgh guys. Yeah, and Aliquippa is a known pit stronghold, obviously, produced Darrell Rivas, a slew of other great pit players. Penn State now getting players out of there. Uh, I think last cycle they got Anthony Specca out of uh, Central Catholic, which is obviously the home of Dan Marino and, and uh, I believe, DeMar Hamlin, um, you know, a lot of other pit greats. So Penn State is going into a lot of these places, Seth, that even even when they were doing well in recruiting, that, that Pitt, you know, kind of traditionally had locked down. Um, is anything stopping James Franklin in, in the Whippeal at this point? Um, or is he pretty much getting, you know, whoever he wants? Yeah, I mean, you, t- you talk about Central Catholic, which is, you know, for the longest time, you know, produced some, some Pitt legends. Um, Anthony Specka and Peter Gonzalez, you know, both coming from Central Catholic and and signing this cycle. And then they went and they got another guy from Central Catholic um, in Xavier Thomas for 2025. Um, you mentioned Alex Tash. That's the most recent one. But to me right now, I mean, you're starting to see Penn State just completely dominate, you know, the Pittsburgh area, and the WPIAL. And it's just like Pitt's not even putting up a fight here. Um, and I don't, I'm not sure. Like, I'm interested from your perspective, like, What's kind of going on with Pat Narduzzi here? Like, I know Penn State has Terry Smith, who's the Pittsburgh legend, and, you know, great to have in your recruiting staff. But, like, Pitt is it literally in their backyard and is a historically pretty good football program. Why, why aren't these prospects choosing to go to Pitt? Instead, they're going, you know, two hours away to Penn State. Like, what, what have you kind of heard? What are you kind of seeing um, um, from, where you're, from where you're at right now? Well, Penn State's always kind of been able to get, you know, it's, it's not as if it's it's a new thing for Penn State to get big Whippeal guys, right? I mean, you think Sean Lee, Paul Puzlesny, Miles Sanders, Joey Porter Jr. of recent vintage. I mean, frequently you're getting guys, um, you know, I, I think it's just Pitt, Pitt does not seem to be getting a whole lot on the board that Penn State wants at all. And, and I think that's interesting coming off of the ACC championship. Um, obviously, it wasn't, you know, kind of a national contending season. I don't know that they got the exposure out of that that, they would have if, you know, they had done what Florida State did this season, right? Go undefeated in the ACC um, and, and you know, put yourself on the national radar. Pitt lost a couple games in, in that season, um, which tanked its national prospects, but because it was the best of a, a, a sorry bunch in the ACC, um, you know, they were, they were able to, you know, beat Wake Forest, 
They had Kenny Pickett. Um, the Jordan Addison connection was great television. They just, I don't think they played in enough of those national games, Seth, to, to kind of get the exposure. I think what we're really seeing is th- this is the perception of the ACC as, as growingly, you know, inferior to the other leagues. I, I feel like this, you just keep filing it under why these ACC teams are trying to leave. Don't you, Seth, of, of, um, you know, there's, there, I think recruits increasingly see a difference in, in the level. And it's not just, you know, as, as we like to talk about a power five or now power four with the collapse of the PAC 12, um, it really is to me reflective of how players are starting to see it as a power two with the SEC. Yeah, it is interesting, right? I mean, it's, it's become kind of this bigger issue um, where all of a sudden you're looking, you know, for your regional kind of school um, when you're raised in Pittsburgh and maybe that school for the longest time has been the school that's literally in your city, but now it's starting to say, well, okay, well, Pitt has kind of fallen behind Penn state just based on the, kind of alignment of the conferences. Um, and, and I do agree with the ACC kind of falling behind there. Um, you know, if you're, if you're a top football, if you're a top football recruit, you're going to want to go to either the SEC or the big 10. Um, and if you're in Pennsylvania, you know, to be able to go to, to Penn state and, and have an opportunity to play against not just Ohio state, and Michigan now, but also, you know, USC and Oregon and UCLA and Washington, you know, that says something, you know, and, and I think it does kind of translate to, like you mentioned, when you have these these nationally televised games, um, that's a big deal when you're trying to get drafted in the NFL, when you have that dream. And I think when kids are coming out of high school, they, they all have that dream. You know, everyone wants to go to the NFL. Um, and I just I do think that Penn State probably gives them, you know, the best opportunity to do that just based on the amount of time they're going to have on the screen. Pitt fans hate how you bring up attendance as well, but I, at this point, I, I think it's impossible to ignore that Pitt plays its its games against or in front of about thirty thousand people. Even the biggest games. I was there for the uh, the game they clinched the Coastal Division against Virginia a couple years ago. Um, the upper deck was mostly empty, and listen, the people who were in the stadium were loud, raucous. They were having a good time. They enjoyed themselves. They cared. Um, it was a great atmosphere on that lower level at Acrisure Stadium, but you know you could tell that that it, 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 there were a lot of people not there, and, and I think a lot of prospects look at that and say, "Man, this does not feel like the big stage that it was even you know 15, 20 years ago when Pitt moved to Acrisure Stadium." You remember those sold out games against Virginia Tech, sold out games against Miami. Um, I remember the Cincinnati game in 2009 when they had the chance to win the Big East. There were 65,000 people there. That was not Penn State. That was not West Virginia. Not these rivalry schools that always bring out fans of the other schools. That was 65,000 Pitt fans packing the stands. And you just don't see that. And I think the ACC is a kind of a mark against that as well, Seth, where uh, Pitt fans just have never had the juice for a game against North Carolina. They've never had the juice for a game against Duke. They've never had juice for a game against Virginia. These these schools that they're not familiar with, um, that aren't traditionally football powers, um, you know, it, it, I think they struggle to get a, a, the city to care about them in the same way they cared about a West Virginia, a Rutgers. Um, uh, Cincinnati is a, kind of a regional opponent. Um, you know, the, the that old Big East magic just does not seem to be there no matter what Pat Narduzzi does, whether he's winning ACC championships, whether he's going three and nine like he did this season, um, 
you know, I, I think at a certain point that has to weigh on Pitt, especially when you compare it to Penn State kind of having, um, you know, just unbelievable atmospheres every weekend. Yeah, I mean, it's imagine you're a recruit one week, you're going to a pit game at home, struggling to bring fans in. And the next day, I mean, it doesn't matter whether it's the whiteout game or whether it's like Ball State. Like Penn State is going to probably have 100,000 people in that stands, maybe a little less if it's a bad opponent. But if you're a recruit, like Penn State's worst kind of attendance is still going to look better than you know, maybe some of the best at, at, at Pitt. And I think that, you know, it totally weighs. Um, I just think the whole experience of going to a Penn State game, like, that's a thing. Um, and most of the guys that are probably committing to Penn State, if they're that close with the coaching staff, you know, they're probably getting an invite to that whiteout game. They're not missing it. Um, so that game alone, and we, we talked about this, you know, how big it is with recruiting just that game. Um, you know, it's huge, especially for some of these in-state guys. You don't want to leave home. And they're weighing their two options between Pitt and Penn State. Like, you go to a whiteout game, that's hard to pass up. It really is. Um, but, you know, I do want to go back to, to Terry Smith here, um, who's another guy with, with you know, major Pittsburgh ties. And, you know, this, this is a guy who I think, you know, Pitt would love to have, you know, on their staff. And Penn State's been lucky to have him for all of James Franklin's tenure. And he has just you know, on an upwards trajectory, just kind of locked down that whole region. Um, you know, when I, I talked to Anthony Specka and Peter Gonzalez, the two Catholic kids who, who signed, uh, you know, they talked, you know, glowingly of, of, of Terry Smith and, you know, kind of what his relationship means to them and, and also, you know, to the coach over there um, is this is just a guy who wants to bring Pittsburgh to Penn State. And he's done that. I mean, it's only gotten better, and we're just starting to see that even more. Um, but every Pittsburgh kid you see here, it doesn't matter if it's offense or defense. Terry Smith has a hand in something there um, just because he is Pittsburgh, and, and he's a legend over there. And um, It's pretty incredible what he's been able to do. I think we got to shout out Justin King in that same vein, Seth. He's, he's been on this Post-Gazette Sports Now YouTube channel frequently. He was involved in the program for a period of time under Terry Smith, and um, you know he's another guy who, who has connections, especially – uh, you know, over on that east end of town um, that, that that definitely laid the foundation, had a close relationship with Joey Porter. And and, and those things, you know, I think matter as well on the personal side. Seth, is this a, this is the recent dominance of, of Penn State in the region kind of an example, another example of why James Franklin's going to be reluctant to put Pitt back on the schedule? Because for a long time, I think the notion was Pitt would put up enough recruiting wins that that you could make an argument that it would help Penn State in recruiting the Whippeal to come in and beat Pitt to establish its dominance to kind of um, you know do what it go back to that you know seventies eighties era when the rivalry was was in its heyday of you know often the the top recruits would choose where they went based on who would win the rivalry game. Um, now Penn State has the dominance without having to win. Um, obviously, they won those three games in four years between twenty sixteen and twenty nineteen, including the last three. So I think that helped establish you know, some recent dominance for, for players to remember. Um, but in, increasingly, it just feels like there's there's less upside. As much as that bothers me as someone who loves the rivalry, who wants to see it played, who's not like your average Penn State fan, who says, ah, we don't need a rival, we're unrivaled. I want to see that game. But as long as Pitt's not putting recruiting wins on the board, I think it gets harder to justify. Yeah, I think fans would love to see it because it's historic and, and it's fun and, you know, it's it's been played for, you know, however long. But 
James Franklin has a point. I know, I know people hate to hear it, um, especially Pitt fans, whenever Franklin says that, you know, there is no point to kind of play the game, but there really isn't. And we've discussed this, you know, a few times now. Um, and I think recruiting is a good example of why he doesn't have to do it. You know, if it's just why if Penn State is already dominating Pitt on the recruiting trail, like like you mentioned, like what they have to gain from a from a win, you know, when they actually play. Like recruiting is just as much a game, if not more, than when they actually play head to head. Um, and there's just really no incentive for Penn State, um, you know, if they were to play that game. And they, you know, like we've said, they it's just you don't really want to put, you know, even a, a remotely decent uh, non-conference team on your schedule now. You just – you can't do it. Maybe Pitt can do that because they're still playing the ACC schedule. Uh, but now Penn State, when you're adding, you know, like USC and Oregon and Washington, dude, you know, to your potential schedule year in and year out, you don't want to add a Pitt. You don't need to do it. Your schedule is good enough. It's not like like the committee sees that. It's not like they're going to be like, oh, well, you didn't have a tough non-conference team. It's like, okay, well, you already played, like, five ranked opponents in a given year. There is nothing that Penn State gains from playing Pitt. Um, it's the same thing that it's been the past couple of months and um, past couple of years even. And and I, I just I just think that this recruiting dominance um, kind of shows that even more. What does it mean for Penn State though, Seth? Because I, I think one of the, the frustrating things from a local perspective is that, that the Whitfield's not turning out the the amount of, you know, division one talent, future NFL talent that it did for, you know, much of my life, um, you know, certainly going back to the 70s and the 80s, this was a very fertile recruiting region. Now Penn State, for all this dominance we're talking about, it's getting like two kids per class out of the out of Western Pennsylvania. Um, is that a, a net negative for Penn State that, you, oh yeah, you've, dom- you've established your dominance in the WPIAL, but there's just not as much to, to get out of the region as there once was. Um, how do you how do you look at that as Penn State has to recruit more regionally and nationally to stay relevant rather than being able to rely on getting a Sean Lee or a Paul Pozlesny in every class? Yeah, I mean, doesn't everyone know? Like, that's just part of the game now is, is football is a national game. Um, I think that the core of, of building in your backyard is important, though. And I think that's that's something that Penn State's wanted to keep through all these changes in college football. Um, and they've done a good job of it, especially over the past couple of years of you know, really dominating the state. It's been, what, three or four years in a row now that Penn State's had the number one recruit in Pennsylvania. I think that's something that that James Franklin was trying to accomplish, you know, since he took the job. And that was difficult because for a couple of years, you know, right around, you know, 2011, 2012, 2013, like these Pennsylvania recruits did not want to go to Penn State because no one wanted to go to Penn State. So the fact that Penn State's been able to establish that dominance again, you know, where it sits, and then kind of make the core of its class and then be able to, to reach outward with, you know, these, these coordinators and, and assistant coaches like, you know, Jay Wan Sider is just a Florida guy through and through to kind of recruit the, the recruit the South. And um, they're starting to venture West a little more too. You know, I think Penn state is, is kind of doing a good job of, of balancing, bringing in the guys that you have to bring in, that you can recruit, you know, most often than, than, than other people. Like these are guys that can come to games every single weekend because they're right next to you. Um, but then also bring in some guys from the South and the West. I, I think Penn state has done a good job of that. And I, I don't know if, I don't know if Pitt really has that same core of, of being able to, you know, kind of, kind of establish themselves as a, you know, a legitimate Pennsylvania recruiting hub. 
Yeah, especially when you just don't get those those kinds of games, you know, and and you're yeah. not you're not Pitt hasn't been you know solid enough for long enough to to put themselves in that game. I think of that Clemson game they had at home during the ACC title run. They got some buzz from that. They need more games like that though. Penn State knows they're going to have one or two games like that on their home schedule every season. Pitt doesn't, and I think that's where you know the ACC has has harmed them a bit, um, you know, compared to the Big East days. Seth, I want to move on. Got a couple other Penn State topics to throw at you. Um, quickly, anything stand out to you from the the Senior and Shrine Bowls this past weekend? We spent you know, a lot of the last episode talking about them. Uh, what did you think of, of the Penn State guys who were out there for those games? Yeah, it was it was kind of along the lines of, of what we talked about and, and the names that we kind of brought up. Um, Adisa Isaac was actually named, you know, Lewis Riddick's, uh, MVP of, of the senior bowl, which is, you know, that was the name that I think we were maybe talking about most of all of this guy who could really use a jump, um, and really use this week to, to showcase some of his skills. And he did that, you know, this is, this is a guy I'd be surprised if he drops out of the second round, in my opinion, like, I think he's one of the best edge rushers in this class. And, you know, for him to be able to show that in front of these NFL scouts, at the senior bowl, I, I think is huge for his stock. Um, Theo Johnson's another guy at the senior bowl who I think really, you know, showed some people what he's capable of, you know, outside of the Penn state system with the, you know, a, a split room of tight ends and, um, you know, having to share kind of some of, some of those targets with, uh, with Tyler Warren there and, you know, being able to be his own player for a week. Um, I, I think he looked good. Um, opposite that, you know, Kalen King d- didn't look so great. You know, he, he was burnt a couple times. Um, you know, Tez Walker from UNC actually called him out a couple times. Um, I don't know if you saw those videos and said, I want to, I want to go against this guy and completely burned him, you know, not, not even a, a chance. Um, so I think that's, that's a guy who at one point, you know, projected first round pick as we near the draft. I don't know, you know, it could, it could be somewhere from, from three to even five. Um, but you know, that's, that's just what I'm reading on. And, um, you know, those three names were probably, you know, most significant for, for better or for worse. Seth wanted to get into uh, winter workouts too. They started um, early this week. Um, who are some guys you think need to show the most growth this offseason for Penn State to kind of take the next step, not just compete toward the bottom of um, this expanded 12-team playoff, but maybe compete for a top four spot, a bye, um, and really make some noise in the Big Ten? Yeah, I mean, to start off, um, the whole receiving core, like um, everyone, but, and this is the same thing that we were talking about, I guess, last year, but, you know, Keandre Lambert-Smith is still on the team. Um, I think I think a lot of us thought he was, he was maybe going to enter the transfer portal, but, you know, this guy is still here, and I think he's still capable of doing some things. Um, I, I just think that, you know, now with Julian Fleming in the room, that should probably help him out a little bit, even some things out. Uh, but for him to have a big offseason and not necessarily be that number one guy, because I think they're going to rely on, you know, also Fleming and then Harrison Wallace too. But, you know, for Keandre to just maintain a consistent role, and um, which is really something he hasn't done in his college career, I, I think is something, you know, that could be huge and something to look for. Um, another guy I just mentioned was, was Harrison Wallace III. This is a guy who I legitimately think could be a number one receiver. 
um, on Penn State, he had the injury concerns. You know, this whole year he was banged up and, you know, didn't really get a chance to, to show what he was capable of until the Peach Bowl. Um, so, so for him to have a good, healthy offseason and then go into, you know, fall camp and months later and, and you know, be ready to kind of shine, you know, I, I, I think Harrison Wallace could have a big year. Yeah, of course, receiver is the place we got to watch. We've been talking about it all all season. I'm sure we'll be talking about it all off season. Um, but yeah, keep an eye on on workouts ahead of spring practice, which is not too far away, Seth. Fortunately, uh, especially because of uh, what Punxsutawney Phil saying, spring's coming early this year. Um, yeah. a, another Pennsylvania legend. So hopefully, we'll have some spring ball to talk about, some things to to watch in the coming weeks. Um, Seth, another topic of interest. It looks like Bill O'Brien now might take the head coaching job at Boston College rather than coordinate the offense at Ohio State. Um, it's unofficial, I think, at this point still. I, ha- I hadn't seen anything official. But um, what, what would that mean for Penn State if if he ends up going from Columbus uh, to Chestnut Hill? Is it a net positive, net negative? Because um, I think you know, I think a lot of Penn Staters would not have liked to see Bill O'Brien wearing Buckeye, Scarlet, and Gray. Yeah. Um... It's, it's not official yet, but it's looking like it's it's going to happen. You know, it's trending in that direction. There have been reports that there's interest on both sides. They're just kind of working through some kinks in the contract. Um, I'd be happy for Bill O'Brien to, to get another head coaching job at the college level. And, you know, he has ties to Boston. Obviously, he's, you know, had multiple stints in New England. Um, wouldn't really have to move too far since he was already there, you know, this, this past year. Um for Ohio State, it's it's a bit of a mess because this was the offseason that I think Ryan Day wanted to take a step back from play calling and get someone else um, to, to handle that for him. Went out and got Bill O'Brien, extensive resume. He's going to take over winter workouts start this week, and you're not sure if he's going to be around much longer. Um, so for Ohio State, that's, that's a bit of a mess um, to, to deal with. But, you know, I don't think Ryan Day has any – that's like problem calling plays. I just didn't really think that he wanted to do it this year. Um, so, you know, he might be forced for a little bit. It's, it's really late to hire another offensive coordinator. You know, a lot of these guys in the market have been, have been picked up already. You know, it's the first week of February. Um, you know, workouts have started again and Ohio state is, is unsure, you know, who exactly will be calling the shots on offense next year. Yeah, so keep an eye on that. Uh, three Nittany Lions in the Super Bowl, Jair Brown, Kevin Givens, Donovan Smith. Latter two guys are both a bit older. I think Givens has been in for five years. I feel like Donovan Smith was in school with me uh, a decade ago. Um, he's only 30, so I guess he was he was a little bit later than me. But um, regardless, uh, what does it mean to, particularly, particularly to have Tig Brown in this game? Um, you know, considering how many guys in that locker room know him, uh, considering how many recruits you know might have seen him play at Penn State, does that uh, help you know with with the exposure of the program to have a guy who was just so recently an integral part of your team, you know, helping helping a, a team get to the Super Bowl in San Francisco? Yeah, the the Jair Brown story is is just phenomenal, um, and I think this is another thing when we talk about in state recruiting, like Jair Brown is you know, a major success story, not just for these highly ranked recruits, but also for some of these guys who go play Juco ball and Penn state isn't afraid to bring in some guys from, from Lackawanna as they do, 
you know, it seems like every year and it seems like a lot of them, you know, end up having pretty significant roles. Jair Brown being one of them, um, you know, starring on Penn State after a few years uh, playing junior college ball. And five years later, you know, this guy is a, is a rookie starting on, on a Super Bowl team on the 49ers. He's starting at safety this year. And, um, you know, it really he, he's one of the probably the nicest people I think I've you know had the honor of covering. Um, and, and his story is, is, is phenomenal and he's never really afraid to, to tell it and, and kind of inspiration for some of those kids. Um, but yeah, I mean, Jair Brown is Jair Brown. You know, if you covered him, I don't think anyone was, was so surprised that he had a successful rookie year. <clears throat> some of those other Penn state guys, um, you know, I don't, what's, what's the graphic again, there's been a Penn state player in every Super Bowl since like what 1968, except for, what was it five except for three? Something. Yeah, except Number for three, yeah. Knock it in at the bottom. That legendary graphic. I wish we could show it on the screen. That was not yeah, the, uh, the finest work of the graphics department, but but you know what? I mean, it is still very impressive that every year around this time, you know, you're curious to see what what Penn State name is going to be in the big game, and not whether a Penn State name is going to be in the big yeah. game. Um, so definitely something to watch this week. Seth got a couple hoops topics for you. Uh, a couple road wins for Penn State since we last talked. Um, at Rutgers, then at Indiana, did not have Kanye Clary uh, for those games. Uh, it was kind of an ace Baldwin run show. You and I talked about, I don't know if tension's the right word. I, I couldn't really come up with a different word, but just kind of the, the tension created by having two guys at their natural position kind of jockeying for time. Now you take Kanye Clary out, Penn State goes out and wins a couple games on the road. One, the, I think the win at Indiana was historic. I think it was they hadn't won by more than 10 points ever or something like that. Um, you know, listen, Indiana is frustrating their fans as always. So I, I don't know if it's let's not pretend we're seeing Penn State dominate a, a great Indiana team, but still, it's significant to go into Bloomington and do that. Um, what's your read on on where this program stands, especially with regards to those two big guys we talked about last week? Yeah, it was totally historic. You know, they hadn't beaten Indiana at Assembly Hall since since 2014. Um, so that's, you know, a decade in the works and finally got it done in the first year under Mike Rhodes, I think it's pretty impressive. Um, and, you know, to also go into Rutgers too, and, you know, get the job done. And like you mentioned, doing both without the leading score, you know, that's, that's difficult to do, but this does feed into our conversation last week, like being able to kind of share the rock when you have two guys who are definitely both able to be the number one guys, how do you share that? Um, Ace Baldwin showed like, okay, maybe, maybe I should be running this offense now this week. Um, but Kanye Clary, obviously still capable. Um, so I'm interested to see what happens moving forward because Penn State played some of his best basketball of the year without Kanye Clary playing. Um, and Ace looks spectacular. I was honestly surprised that he didn't get any looks for, you know, big 10 player, of the big 10 player of the week. Um, you know, he was just phenomenal on both sides of the ball, um, on both of those road games, but. Um, this could be a turning point. You know, Mike Rhodes went into the week not having a single road win. He leaves with, with two straight. Um, so going home, playing Iowa on Thursday, you know, if Penn State's able to turn this into a bit of a win streak, I'm not saying March Madness is a possibility, but um, I think this, this could be, you know, a significant kind of turning point for the program as they try to figure themselves out. Yeah, I mean, you're not at the point yet, Seth, where I think you have to run the table to get in. Um, you got 11 losses. You still got a lot of big win potential wins on the table. You have that Wisconsin upset. It, you know, 
you can imagine a, a, a March Madness. At least the math is still there, I think is what I'm trying to say. Um, I don't know if I'm a believer yet that they can do what they did last year and, and get hot at the right time. I think it's gonna, yeah. they'd have to be getting hot for a lot longer than they did last season. Last season, they really only needed that really strong March to get in. Now you're talking about a month and a half of maybe you can drop one or two before the Big Ten tournament, yeah. maybe three if you're really lucky. Um, it's still going to be some pretty heavy lifting. But, you know, it's worth it's worth watching, and they will be the first game in a very interesting Penn State basketball Thursday because um, they're kind of the, the undercard to – McKenna Marisa and Caitlin Clark going head-to-head Penn State versus Iowa in women's basketball. Um, I think one of the disappointing things about Penn Penn State's athletic department is the way the Lady Lions have strongly faded in relevance. You know, when I was growing up, I'd say that was the team on campus that that was maybe most identifiable out of the football team. Rini Portland had so much success. Um, You know, big names like Kelly Mazzani. Even when I was in school, Machine Gun, Maggie Lucas – was nailing a ton of threes. Coquise Washington got them into a few NCAA tournaments. But really for the last decade, Seth, this program has been irrelevant on campus. Now you have a one of – I think they said McKenna Marissa, Marissa is one of only uh, three 2,000-point scorers along with Caitlin Clark. So this is a very interesting head-to-head matchup. Um, you're going to have the lead-in of, of an audience that's already watching Penn State basketball at 7 o'clock. So hopefully there are a lot of people that, that stick around to watch the Lady Lions as – they're making a, a real, I think, strong run at getting back to March Madness. Does this have a chance to be a program-defining win um, for that group? Oh, absolutely. I mean, that that Iowa team with, with Caitlin Clark, who is – I think it's pretty safe to say, you know, the most dominant college athlete on the planet right now, maybe the most dominant we've seen in, I don't know, over a decade, uh, maybe more. You know, she's she's been outstanding, and that Iowa team is just completely dominant. Um, but Penn State is it's interesting, right? No, I, I don't follow the Lady Lions too closely. Um, but this was a team that was doing all these great things this season, you know, with Marisa and the rest of that squad. That was before, you know, one of their best players kind of got back, who was, you know, one of their transfer portal additions in Ashley Awosu, who came back, you know, only maybe a week or two ago. Um, so for her to now be playing and she's starting and playing really well, you know, that adds a whole other component to this to this roster that wasn't even there previously. Um, and I think it is a testament to to how kind of Penn State ran the transfer portal this year, you know, to be able to get someone like Owosu. Um, and, and then there were some other transfer portal additions in there too. Um, you know, I think they they kind of recruited in the portal maybe, you know, better than most, than most women's basketball teams in the country. Um, so I, if they're able to beat Iowa, you know, this is a game I, I'm very interested in watching. Um, if they're able to beat Caden Clark in Iowa, um, that that would be you know absolutely historic and um, and certainly fun for for that program. It'd be seismic, especially you know I I was watching the women's Final Four last season and thinking, man, I mean this was th- these were games Penn State used to play in every year, and and they're not. Yeah. And and at a time when ESPN's really trying to focus women's sports, put it put them in the spotlight. And I shouldn't just say ESPN. I, I, Fox had Caitlin Clark on on Saturday night in their primetime slot. Um, you know, it, it's been frustrating that Penn State hasn't been relevant. And, and so, um, you know, it'll be interesting to see if they can get that. That's at least play well. I don't know if you can beat Caitlin Clark. Um, you know, it's, it's, I don't know if Penn State's at that level yet, but, but if you can put on a show, put on a watchable game, um, you know, Penn State's going to get exposure from that. They've gotten more exposure. And so, um, yeah, I figured it was time to give the, the Lady Lions some love for, for what's been, you know, I think 
one of their better years in a while. We'll see if they can finish it off and um, at least get one Penn State team into March Madness, even if the men are not going to be, um, you know, probably in the mix unless they really go on quite the run here, Seth. Right. Yeah, they'd, they'd probably have to win out, um, maybe drop one or two. But if, I don't know. It's unlikely, but, you know, we'll see what happens. We've seen crazier things. So uh, Penn State hoops. Yeah, big. I can't remember a back-to-back Thursday night like this ever, Seth. Where uh, you know yeah. there, you have the, the going to be Penn State for four and a half, five hours on the Big Ten Network, so you can just kick back at seven and, and watch a couple of games. Um, hopefully, they will be entertaining. Seth, any final thoughts on the week before we wrap up here? No, nah, that's it for me. Thanks, Adam. Well, Seth, travel safely to the Super Bowl. We'll be watching um, your dispatches from there, and hopefully, we will talk to you about the whole experience again next week. Yep, sounds good. Take care, everyone. Thank you for checking out this content from Post-Gazette Sports. If you watch this video on YouTube, please like the video and subscribe to our channel. For all of the sports coverage the Post-Gazette has to offer, visit post-gazette.com.